Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas Fort Worth region. Become a member today at DFWworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes and Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Well, that's sort of a shaggy dog story. Uh, uh, I live in a country, I guess, that doesn't have a functioning social welfare system, so I had to save for my own retirement. Uh, and uh, and uh, as I, I approached the problem the way I... Th- thought that any, any scientist would do, which is to review the peer-reviewed literature, go into the great texts. Uh, and, uh, and I did that, and I realized that I was going to have to collect some, some data and build some models, and so I did that. And this wasn't easy. This was back in the 90s when financial data wasn't easy to, to, to get a hold of, particularly long, long data series. Uh, and so I built my models, and I realized at the end of it that I had done something uh, which, which might be of use to people. So I wrote a couple of finance books, and they sold pretty well. And then I got tired of writing finance, and one of the problems that I had come across was the relationship between economic growth and uh, security returns, which is not as straightforward as you might think that it is. Uh, And I uh, became interested in the problem as to why exactly uh, economic growth accelerated so rapidly in the early part of the 19th century, and I decided to write a book about it. Uh, And uh, my publisher thought that was a good idea. So I wrote this third book called The, the Birth of Plenty, which was about the, the, uh, the acceleration of economic growth in the 19th uh, century. And I just about finished that book, uh, and uh, uh, this was now four years ago. I got a phone call from a man with the unlikely name of Brando Skyhorse, who is a, uh, 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 an acquisitions editor at Grove Atlantic. And he said, you know, would I like to write a book on the history of world trade? And I said, not, not really. Uh, it's, it's not a subject I know that much about. I'm not interested in it. But I've got some other things that I'd like to write about, and here are my other ideas. And he said, no, we want a book on world trade. I said, besides which, you've got the wrong Bernstein. You want Peter Bernstein, who, who as many of you know, uh, is, is a... Is a- well-known uh, economic author. And so I said, well, I'll think about it. And I went back in from my den into uh, my, uh, my living room. And uh, I told my wife what had happened. And she looked at me and she said, you know who Grove Atlantic is, don't you? And I said, well, not really. She said, well, you know who Grove Press is? And I said, okay, Doris Lessing, Henry Miller, and so forth. And she said, yeah. And she said, you know, you, you, and I know you have a subscription to Atlantic Monthly. And I said, yeah. Well, that's Grove Atlantic. If you value your career as a nonfiction writer and they ask you to write a cookbook, you will write it. <laughs> So all of a sudden, a book about the history of world trade didn't look so bad, and, and that's how I got involved in, in the project. That is a great shaggy dog story. Um, most of us in eighth grade history uh, learned a little bit about the birth of global trade, but I think we conceive that much too narrowly. We tend to think that it, it began with Marco Polo. Um, But as you demonstrate in this book, uh, it happened much earlier, and the roots are much more complicated uh, than the polos heading off to China. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the earliest stages uh, of what we now think of as global trade, the why and how? Well, you can go back really quite some distance. I mean, about 50,000 to 100,000 years ago, human beings 
underwent a, a market acceleration in the evolution of their cognitive capacity in Northeast Africa, which is how we became the modern human species. We became much more cooperative, much less violent, if, that's, if you can believe that, but it's true. Uh, and we evolved a, a repertoire of cooperative behaviors, one of which was sophisticated linguistic ability, and the other of which was this proclivity to exchange things with each other uh, and, and to trade. Uh, we, we seem to like dealing with novel goods from far away. And as far back as you go in the archaeological record, you can actually find evidence of trade. You can find evidence of, for example, a long-distance trade in obsidian, um, which is a volcanic glass which was very useful for cutting uh, 10, 15,000 years ago, over hundreds and even sometimes thousands of miles. And actually in multiple places in the world, not only uh, in the cradle of civilization, in the Fertile Crescent, but also in the Yucatan uh, as, as well. And you can fast forward 5,000 more years and you can find evidence of trade in manufactured items, axes, tools, things like that, the things that last 5,000 years um, uh, in Northern Europe, all the way from the, with items being traded all the way from the mouth of the Danube on the Black Sea. Uh, to the Baltic Sea, you know, a couple thousand uh, miles away. So as long as there have been modern human beings, there has been, there has been trade. By the late Middle Ages, early Renaissance period, Spain and Portugal uh, had begun to develop large navies and begin to push out from the Iberian Peninsula. How did that change the world um, that those initial forays um, out into the, the deep blue sea. Well, before I answer that question, you have to understand what the world looked like before Portugal and Spain came on the scene. Uh, and, and basically, this was a world that was dominated by Muslim traders in the Indian Ocean. The, uh, the primary uh, civilizations were arrayed along the most advanced civilizations of the medieval period uh, and of the European the Dark Ages um, were, were arrayed uh, all the way from the, um, the uh, uh, east coast of Africa through the Indian Ocean to the Malay Peninsula and to China and Japan. At this point, in, in the great universities were in Cordoba uh, and Damascus. Um, you know, the Europeans had barely gotten down from the trees by that point. Um, and and this, there was a, an axis of trade that ran through the Indian Ocean, driven by the monsoon pattern of the winds, um, and driven also by Muslim legal and um, uh, commercial tradition. So uh, there were Muslim traders who were black Africans and Indians and Malays and and Chinese, and they all understood each other because they all understood the same commercial law. Never forget that the prophet was a traitor. Uh, and so this was the world that the, the, um, the Europeans had to crack. Now, the problem that the Europeans had was also geopolitical, which is that after the, uh, the first uh, Arab conquest, they had completely closed off the entrances to the West Sea, the traditional European entrances to the West Sea at uh, the Red Sea and through the Persian Gulf, out the uh, Bab al-Mandeb uh, and out uh, the uh, Strait of Hormuz, how little things change. Um, and and uh, a European could not so much as dip an oar uh, into the Indian Ocean. Uh, the Europeans were mad for spices, uh, and that's a story by itself, which you, you, might, you might ask me about. But they were mad for spices, and they, that was the primary, pr 
profitable, most profitable long-distance commodity of the era. And they were desperate to break into the Indian Ocean so they could break into this uh, trade. And they simply couldn't do it. The great voyages of discovery, Columbus, Magellan, Da Gama, they weren't looking for new lands. They weren't looking for, for places to conquer. They were, for the most part, trying to spread Christianity. They were looking for spices. Okay? And finally, the Portuguese found a way by rounding the Cape of Good Hope to the south. Uh, they broke in uh, to the Indian Ocean in 1498. Da Gama lands in Calicut um, in India, uh, and the world... The world turned on its axis. Interesting thing about the spices. Um, Europeans had had a, a real taste for cinnamon, nutmeg, and so forth for centuries. Um, but even after they ventured out and began to, to do their own exploration, they didn't know where the spice islands were. When you hear a term like the Spice Islands, it means that you don't know anything about those islands except that spices come from them. There was a, there was a, there was a mystery that was, was 2,000 years earlier than that, which was where tin came from. Tin was an essential element of bronze in the Mediterranean world back in the ancient period. People knew where copper came from. It came from Cyprus and the Sinai. But tin came from far away, and no one knew where tin came from. And Herodotus and other people speculated about the tin islands. Well, there were no tin islands. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but there were Spice Islands, and the Spice Islands uh, are a group of uh, islands in the Moluccas on the far eastern uh, part of the Indonesian archipelago, just off the west coast of New Guinea, which was several thousand miles beyond the geographic horizon uh, of uh, Europeans. Um, and that's where nutmeg mace and uh, um, cloves came from. Cinnamon came from Sri Lanka, which was still over the horizon from uh, Western knowledge. So you had this commodity, which was in enormous demand simply because it was so rare and expensive. And it was wrapped in this, this shell of mystery. No one knew where it came from. It was a perfect marketing storm. Uh, and whoever controlled this trade um, uh, basically controlled the commercial fortunes of Europe and uh, by, by extension its geopolitical strength as well. That's why they were so anxious to, to find the Spice Islands to get to Asia. As we all know, one of the, the most significant of those early voyagers uh, was Columbus, figure that's wrapped in myth and half-truth and so forth. Um, and I really enjoyed what you had to say about him being something of a bumbler and an accidental tourist, et cetera, et cetera. Can you tell us a little bit about the real Columbus? All, all the stories that we read about Columbus uh, were false. All of the stories that, that we were told in school about Columbus were, were just absolutely untrue. Um, he, 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 was, he, he was a bumbler, but he was, he was a competent bumbler. He was, he was a, a good... He was, he, there were some things he was very good at. He was good at trading. He was good at preparing ships. Uh, he would inspect every single plank on a ship before it went uh, anywhere. But his geography was terrible. Uh, his, his navigation was terrible. He thought, uh, when he, you know, he estimated the latitude of Cuba at 42 degrees north. Uh, you know, that's New York, okay? Um, you know, whereas, whereas Da Gama, you know, when he went to India, actually missed Calicut by about five or six miles. Uh, that's how that's how that's how good he was. He and he he absolutely believed that he had found the Indies, which is was was basically the the uh, the European t term not for India but for anywhere in Asia. 
really, because that's where spices were. And so he brought back gold, ship pots, you know, just, 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 just shipfuls of what he thought was gold. Well, it was iron pyrite, because he didn't bring along a metallurgist. Okay? Uh, he would meet these Indians, and he would pronounce them that they were, you know, these were, these, were, these were Indian Muslims. Well, he didn't bring along any Arabic speakers, so he didn't know that they were, you know, Caribs, uh, and that he wasn't in India after all. He would bring uh, this bark along and show it to the queen and say, well, here's the cinnamon that I've got from, from the Indies. And, and, and the queen's botanists would look at it and say, I don't think so. Uh, and, and, and he, you know, pepper. He would bring, you know, chili peppers, and he would tell people that, 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 they, were, that they were black pepper. And, 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 you know, so, but, but so, so he, you know, he, he did a lot of things. The other thing, which, which was just an amazing accident, I mean, the most amazing thing is we're all told that he thought that the world was flat, uh, that the world was round, and everybody else thought it was flat. Well, no educated person in the year 1490 thought that the world was flat. Everybody knew it was, it was round. And they even knew how big it was. They knew it was 25,000 miles around. But there was some debate as to exactly how large it was. Well, he wanted it for his own reasons to be only 17,000 miles around. And the reason why he wanted it to be only 17,000 miles around is because he knew, and everybody knew by that point, that the east-to-west difference, or west-to-east difference, from Europe to the tip of Siberia was about 12,000. So if that was 12,000 miles and the world was 17,000 miles in circumference, then he only had to go 5,000 miles um, west to get to the Indies. All right, and it's a good thing that that uh, that North America was in the way, and he ran into it because if he hadn't, his crew would have perished because he wouldn't have lasted that long. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have made it all the way around the way Magellan did. One of the the things that I thought was most fascinating about your book was in chapter eight. Um, you noted how we uh, really the first tangible signs of true globalization. Um, thing that we can point to is we wound up with Portuguese-speaking Jews in what is now New York and Chinese barbers in Mexico. Can you talk about how that, that came to be, and, and, and relatively rapidly, really? <laughs> and fast. Well, actually, rather than tell those two stories, there's another story that I'll tell very briefly, which is, which, which is the same chapter and tells the same thing, which is that in 1931, a small Australian boy is ambling along the uh, beach north of Perth, and he picks up these coins, uh, and there are about two dozen Spanish silver coins that were minted in Mexico City, in the early 17th century. And so people are scratching their heads. How in the world did these coins get off the west coast of Australia? Well, it turns out they came on a Dutch ship. Okay. The Dutch ship left uh, Amsterdam in the year 1665, no, 1655, uh, and ran into a reef. Well, the way it ran into the reef was the way you got around the world in those days uh, at that latitude was by, and you got to Asia, was you dropped down uh, from Europe to the southern coast of Africa, and then you kept going south, okay, until you hit the Roaring Forties. And then you zipped east for 5,000 miles at a good clip on the Roaring Forties, okay, and then you hung a left. Uh, and threaded the Sunda Straits, and you got to Jakarta, as was called then uh, Batavia. And the only thing wrong, this was a great route. It cut the, the transit time in half. You were in cooler latitudes. You were healthier. You didn't get scurvy. Um, you didn't get tropical diseases. Your ship stayed safer. And the only problem was you had to know when to turn left. 
All right? And if you didn't, you slammed into the reefs of Western Australia. So eventually they found the ship called the Vergul de Drake with 40,000 silver coins off of a reef, which was actually one of many European ships that had wrecked off the, uh, the coast. And, of course, the silver had come from the New World because the Spanish silver lasted in, you know, silver stayed in Spain from the New World about 10 minutes because the, 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 uh, the, uh, the Spaniards were incredibly profligate. They spent the money as soon as they, they, they found it on, 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 on monasteries and, and castles and religious wars. Uh, and so the, most, most of the silver wound up in Northern Europe, particularly in Amsterdam, where the, Amsterdam, where the Dutch traded with it. And then later on, we wind up with the, the, the story I was alluding to about the... the <laughs> prompting, prompting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. The... Uh, Okay, so I'll tell the story of the, uh, the Jews uh, in, in New York uh, and then uh, the, um, the uh, Chinese barbers in Mexico City. Um, the, in, in, in the earlier, even in this story, in the, in the early 1600s, there were some Chinese barbers, that is blood letters, uh, in Mexico City. And, and, the, and the Spanish blood letters really weren't terribly happy with this. Okay? So they referred the matter to the, uh, the viceroy, uh, and they complained to the viceroy. And the viceroy complained to the city, referred the matter to the city council. And the city council said, look, take these Chinese barbers and put them on the outskirts of the city and limit their shops to a dozen. Okay. And so the question is, how did the Chinese barbers get to Mexico? Well, the answer was uh, that, that they were part of this vast trade, which went on the trade winds. I've already told you about the Roaring Forties. Well, there was another system in the North Northern Pacific, which got you across the Pacific very quickly from west to east. Uh, and so all of this Spanish silver went on the other trade route, which went equatorially from east to west, uh, to Manila, where it basically brought the other great luxury commodity of Asia, which was silk, Chinese silk, greatly prized uh, around the world. So you had this trade where the wealth of Croesus in, the, in, 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 New, in, in New Spain, in Mexico, and in um, uh, Peru was exchanged for the sublime luxuries of the East, this vast circular trade, the so-called Galleon trade, uh, and the people who profited from this trade were the Manolianos, who were Spaniards, who uh, settled first in Manila and then went to Mexico City to run warehouses. And they made vast fortunes. And they would take their Chinese servants along with them, because they preferred Chinese servants um, to Filipino servants. Uh, and, and that's how a lot of uh, uh, Chinese people got to Mexico City in the early part of the 17th century. Now, the other interesting part of this story has modern relevance, which is that we know who won, but there were losers, too. Okay? Obviously, the Spanish and Mexican producers of silk were apoplectic about this because they were being subject to unfair foreign competition from cheap Asian goods. Uh, and, this is, and, 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 and there are several, actually, instances in other parts of the world as this as well. And they tried to get protection. They tried to get the, uh, 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 the, the trade uh, completely uh, forbidden. They actually got the uh, uh, Spanish uh, king and the uh, viceroy to forbid it. But, of course, Spain being Spain, uh, it was easy to, to, to bribe their, for the merchants to bribe their way uh, around the system. Um, the other great commodity of the era was sugar. Uh, and sugar is an entirely different subject. Sugar uh, is the heroine of foodstuffs. No 
human, no, no peoples have ever reduced their consumption of it. And at the, at the dawn of the medieval period, or the modern period, I should say, it was very precious. It was as expensive as the other four fine spices. But gradually, the manufacturing uh, techniques improved, and the vast uh, uh, tracts of the New World were opened up, and uh, an enormous amount of sugar began to be produced in the New World. Uh, and the technology was Portuguese, basically, because the first islands in the Atlantic that produced them were Madeira uh, uh, and, and several other Portuguese islands. So the Portuguese um, basically uh, were the ones who knew this trade. Uh, and the Portuguese did a really stupid thing, which the, the Spaniards did too, which is they threw out the Jews, uh, which is never a smart thing to do. Um, and, and, and they all wound up in Amsterdam, where... Uh, a lot of them wound up in the employ of the Dutch West India Company. And the, and, the, and, the, um, and the Dutch saw these Portuguese Jews and said, wow, not only do they speak Portuguese, not only do they know how to, to, um, to, uh, to make sugar, we can send them to Brazil, which, okay, it's owned by the Portuguese, but will invade and take it over, which they did for a while. Um, and the, the, these Dutch... Portuguese Jews who worked for the Dutch West India Company wound up in, in, in sugar production in, um, in, um, uh, in Brazil. Well, the story becomes, has its modern relevance because uh, in the year 1640, the Portuguese, in a fit of, of, uh, uh, of patriotism, throw out the Spaniards from their own home country. The Brazilian Portuguese get their own idea that, hey, we want our own independence too, and so they throw the Dutch out, which included all of these Portuguese Jews, and these Jews have nowhere to go, and a fair number of them wound up just heading north, fleeing north wherever they could, and some of them wound their way up in New York City, who were the first Jews in the New World. So they got by way from Lisbon to Amsterdam to Recife uh, to Santo Domingo, and finally to New York City. Uh, again, not an unusual story in the, uh, in the 17th century. One of the interesting things that you touched on in telling that story is the fact that uh, the trading companies uh, uh, were involved in this. Since we have lots of lawyers here, can you talk a little bit about how law facilitated um, developments in trade uh, from earliest times, uh, both in terms of maritime law, etc., and... Um, the, the, the architecture that allowed the creation of corporate entities. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> well, first of all, a little bit of history. The two great companies of the era were the Dutch and the English East India Company, and they were both uh, uh, founded at almost exactly the same moment, around the year 1600. But there the similarity ends, okay? Because for the first hundred years, the Dutch company was the dominant country. And it was the dominant country... Um, because uh, Dutch financial institutions and the legal processes that underlied it uh, were so very sophisticated. And I, I really wouldn't credit Dutch law so much. I think that the law followed the finance rather than the other way um, around. The reason why the Dutch had such advanced financial institutions is because they're this flat country uh, that has a lot of reclaimable land from the sea. And during the late medieval period, uh, they, um, they reclaimed this land from the sea by building dikes and pumping out the sea. Um, and in order to do that, they needed vast amounts of capital because they had to build walls, they had to build windmills. That's what all the windmills were all about, of course, in Holland, was, was pumping. Um, and so they became skilled at raising capital, 
all right? And Dutch interest rates, you know, by the year 1600 were as low as 3%, quite, quite remarkably. Um, and, of course, they built their legal institutions around this borrowing structure. And this facilitated, the, the, the Dutch naturally were, were, became very comfortable in dealing with shares, um, so a typical middle-class person, if you looked at the estate of a m- typical middle-class person in Holland, he might own a 64th of a, of, of a voyage here, a 32nd of a ship there, 117th of a trading company somewhere else. He owned fractional shares. Now, the English were way, way behind that because you had this very corrupt uh, Tudor monarchy. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, you know, gets a lot of press these days, but but she was really a, a, a lousy institutional example because she created these monopolies that she would collect for the main purpose of supplying her with bribes. Um, you know, Sir Walter Raleigh famously uh, had the wine uh, monopoly, the monopoly on sweet wines in London. Um, and, uh, you know, about the middle of the 17th century, the, the Brits decided they had had enough of this corrupt monarchy. So they chucked him out and lopped off Charles the first head and there's, there's this generation or so, more than a generation of instability, which ends in the year 1688 when the um, uh, English Protestants in the parliament invite over a Dutch king, uh, King Willem, or the Stadtholder actually, he wasn't a king, Willem III, who becomes King William of England. And his agenda is to beat Louis XIV, to beat the French. Uh, and he needs to get a combined army of Holland and England, which he manages to do. And he needs a fiscal base. He needs a revenue base, which he didn't have. No, no monarch of that era had a, had a firm, had a firm uh, f- fiscal or, or, or levy base. And so what he did was he said, okay, look, um, I'll give up the divine right of kings. He says this to the parliament. I'll give up the divine right of kings um, and give you constitutional supremacy if you give me an import duty tax. And parliament says, done. So at a stroke, England loses this corrupt monarchy and gets rule of law, you know, basically constitutional and judicial supremacy. Sir Edward Koch is a big part of this story, which I'm sure all the lawyers in, 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 the, uh, in the audience know something, know something about. Uh, and also, interest rates go way down because now you have a risk-free borrower. You have a risk-free asset, which is the British government bond. And so the English government and English companies can finally get capital. And if that's the point at which the English and East India Company uh, takes, takes off. And so, you know, Americans, we tend to think that 1776 was, all, was, was really important. That was the birth of our liberty. Probably not. The real year was 1688 and the revolutionary settlement of the next year when we got rid of the divine right of kings. Because when you read the the founding fathers, when you read the Federalist Papers, all they really wanted was the rights of Englishmen, which they had had for almost a century. Um, A couple of months ago, one of my colleagues and I, we were in Edinburgh for a competition law conference and happened to be the week that um, the British government essentially had to nationalize the old Scottish banks, uh, at least one of which stretched back 400 years. One of the lessons uh, that I drew from your, your book is that these booms and busts, um, uh, these periodic collapses, uh, are in some ways part of the fabric of, uh, of global trade, of global economies, and so forth. Could you kind of comment on that historical boom-bust cycle well, it's, it's the classic credit cycle, which we've all been reminded of uh, lately. Um, and and, and the, 
you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a cycle that we're all very familiar with. It starts in a depression. Uh, things are very cheap. Interest rates are very low. That, uh, that uh, attracts business investment eventually. Uh, and then things start to heat up. Uh, and then you get the speculative bubble, uh, which bursts and produces another depression, and round and round you go. And the real, the real question, and it's the question that we still haven't resolved, is what is the, what is the role of governments uh, in, in restraining uh, these and in damping this down? Um, I, I think that government certainly has a role. Uh, we learned that uh, with, the, with the panic of 1907, uh, which gave birth to the Federal Reserve. We finally wised up, but unfortunately the Federal Reserve fouled up um, uh, the, uh, the, the crash of 1929 and turned off the spigot instead of turned it up. Uh, and uh, and we, we got more federal regulation at that point, which unfortunately got repealed very recently, thank you, Phil Graham, uh, and gave us a lot of the speculation that we, that, we have, that we have now. And I think we're going to be learning, relearning the lessons of the 20s and 30s uh, over again. You know, the, 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 the genius of the unfettered capital markets uh, does need some breaks on it. We've got a, a couple of questions from our high school guests here, and then we'll take some audience questions for a few minutes. Uh, Laura from Colleyville Heritage High School asks, how has trade affected people's values or morals? Uh, Laura, that's the best question of the day so far. Of course. Uh, <laughs> um, the, real, the, the real benefits of trade are not economic. Trade does have economic benefits. There's no question about it. In a Ricardian uh, comparative advantage, it's better, for the, it's better for the Argentines to produce beef and, and the Brazilians to produce sugar than for it to be done in Florida. Uh, and it's better for us to produce aircraft, quite frankly, than to have it done in Brazil, which was what they've been trying to, to do with, with modest success. There, there, there is a benefit of trade, and there is an economic benefit of trade, but the real benefit of trade is intangible um, because uh, it, it, um, it basically motivates people uh, to, um, to want to trade with their neighbors and live among them rather than to annihilate them. Uh, the more we trade with other people, the more we understand them, and the more likely we are to, to be at peace uh, with them. The real damage that Smoot-Hawley did uh, during the 1930s was not that it caused the Great Depression. It really didn't, and I'm not going to go into the numbers, but most, most economic historians feel strongly that, that Smoot-Hawley didn't cause the Great Depression. What it did cause was World War II. Okay, because without Smoot-Hawley, Germany would have been able to repay its reparations. Hitler would have never been elected chancellor. Jacob, also from Colleyville Heritage High School, also has a better question than anything I ask. <laughs> Which had a greater impact, the trade of material goods or the trade of ideas? Yeah, uh, I, 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 I think that they're both both equal. Uh, the trade of I, I can't, you know, it's, that's, that's an imponderable. I can't answer that question because, you know, you can't weigh one on one side and one on the other side. But the history of trade is replete with examples of how uh, ideas uh, got, uh, you know, um, carried from one place to another. For one simple example, I mean, the, um, the Indians invented the zero, 
all right, uh, which was probably one of the greatest single intellectual advancements of all of mankind. I mean, before the Indians invented the zero, we had to deal with these stupid Roman and Greek-style numerals that had letters, and you couldn't, you know, it was, it was, really, it was really a mess. I mean, that alone um, was, was, was probably worth 50 years of, of human uh, advancement. Another uh, uh, item that came to the west from the east was paper. Imagine a world without paper. Imagine what the world was like before the invention of paper. You know, the, the, the Chinese invented it probably around the dawn of the common era. It gets to the west via the, val- the Battle of Talus somewhere in the, 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 the 8th century or so. Um, a, a world without paper is a frightening thing to, uh, to contemplate. Um, you know, we think of Gutenberg as being so very important, and Lord knows he was. Movable type was extremely important. But think of, you know, it wouldn't have done any good at all if there wasn't paper to print it on. You know, papyrus. I mean, it took a skilled person one day to to uh, to make one sheet of papyrus uh, in the ancient world. Um, a, a, a manuscript done on parchment might take an entire flock of sheep. Amazing. We have a, a few minutes for some questions. If you raise your hand, our friend back there in the purple turtleneck will bring a mic around to you. Would you comment on uh, tulip mania, the Dutch in the 1600s, and how that came about? Well, um, yeah, the, 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 the tulip mania was actually a mania not so much in tulips as in tulip futures. Uh, and it was a classic uh, futures uh, bubble uh, in which rising prices uh, attracted more and more investment until finally the last the last sucker bought the last tulip contract and then the game was up uh, which you know you can say the same thing about certain financial instruments in, in this day and age in a two. yeah ex- ex- exactly exactly yeah I, I mean yeah don't get me started on credit default swaps I mean it's, <laughs> that, it's, that's beyond the subject yeah over here You've indicated uh, when you spoke with your wife that, uh, and you were talking about the cookbook situation. W- could you describe the process that you went through to do this research, starting from pretty much what it sounds like to me, ground zero? Dead stop, yeah. Um, well, it only took me four years. Uh, and, and I began, I mean, I, I can't say that I, I had no knowledge of it. I mean, I'd written a book of, of economic history, so I knew something about, about world trade, and I knew something about the institutions that, that underlay it. Um, and I started with the classics. Uh, the, the, the publisher, Brando's boss, was very perceptive. He knew that no one had ever written a good mass market book about the history of trade. But there were certainly a lot of academic texts that were written about world trade. And so I basically learned about the architecture of world trade history. Uh, And I realized, uh, and my editor realized at that point, if that's all that I did, if I just adapted a book like that or a style like that to a... um, to a um, uh, to to a more mass market style that the book wouldn't succeed and it wouldn't do justice to my efforts and so what I rather did instead was I hit upon something which 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 served me well which is I simply looked for the most compelling narratives that I could find if there was sex if there was head bashing uh, <laughs> if there were if there were exotic commodities into the book it went and then what I 
I figured out how to do was to very lightly lay the skein of world trade history the the- and, and trade theory too. Trade theory is very important. Ricardo is very important. Uh, you know, Paul Samuelson and, and, and Wolfgang Stolper are very important. But if all you do is write a chapter on 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 comparative advantage and Wolfgang and, and, and Stolper Samuelson, uh, you know, your book will sell a dozen or two dozen copies. So what I was constantly on the prowl for were narratives. And I spent basically four years looking for narratives and weaving them uh, into, into a book. That's, that's how you write. If you, you know, if you want to write nonfiction that sells, that's what you've got to do. Question. Besides Smoot-Hawley, what has the American mind delivered to world trade for example, like the birth of the container, which I think is a huge plus for global trade. I know you did mention in the book, but maybe you could comment on the introduction of the container and its impact on world trade. Oh, wrong. No, I've got three or four pages on the container. Okay. <laughs> yeah, all right. No, no, no. Uh, the, 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 the story of the container is very interesting. The, the, the container is the coda, if you will, um, of, uh, of, of the mechanization of trade. The great advance in world trade in the modern period uh, was uh, a contribution by an Englishman who we all know the name of, Henry Bessemer, who invented the blast process for steel. And the fallout from this was that you got cheap rails, high-pressure boilers for both ships and trains, and all of a sudden you can transport bulk goods around the world for next to nothing, all right? and the real problem was overland transport. I mean, for three or four hundred years, you could actually get things across the ocean pretty cheaply. The problem was getting it to port. If you were producing grain, okay, um, uh, you had to be within 12, 25 miles of a port to get it to Europe, to Europe which is where prices for it were, were higher. If you were somewhere in the middle of the Midwest, if you were more than 100 miles from a port of any sort, you might as well be, have been on the far side of the moon. And that was the advantage of steel rails and steel boilers for, for, for railroad, uh, for, lo- for, for locomotives. Um, the problem then, of course, when you, when you have a great advance like that, it shifts the bottleneck somewhere else. And the bottleneck that it got shifted to were the ports. You wound up spending almost as much money in the ports as you did, um, um, uh, you know, shipping it across the ocean. And it was the, the brainchild of a man, I believe named McDermott, maybe I have the name wrong, um, who, wh- who realized that what you needed was an intermodal device, a box that you could put on a ship and then put on a rail car, basically, or put on the back of a truck. And he had to invent this. And what he did was at the end of the World, World War II, he, he, got a sh- he bought a couple of ships called T2s, which were these huge tankers. And he picked them because they were, had square hulls. The cross-section of them was square. And so they would fit containers, which he designed and built. And that was the, the birth of the shipping container. The, the, the real advance there wasn't a technical advance. It was actually a legal advance because the, 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 probably the worst clause in the Constitution, the, the, the Commerce Clause, Okay, um, uh, prevent, you know, gave basically authorized the ICC to to um, to uh, regulate trade among the states, and they throttled the development of these devices because they wanted to regulate them. And finally, the ICC got abolished 
uh, and 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 the container the container took off. So that's that was that was our that was the probably the, the main American contribution. The other main American contribution was really not one a me- me- mechanical one. It was an idea, which was uh, a, a document. It's the most important document you've never read called Proposals for the Expansion of Trade uh, and Employment, uh, and it came from the bowels of the State Department. Uh, and the State Department realized after World War II that World War II had been caused by, by Smoot-Hawley. They, 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 you know, this, was, this is not my theory. This is, this is, these are, these are you know, our own top diplomats who realized this. And they said, we've got to put together a world trade order so that, that, that encourages trade, prevents these protectionist trade wars so that this never, ever, ever happens again. And that's how we got the GATT and finally the WTO. Got time for two more questions, one over here and one over here. Um, experts agree that al-Qaeda has emboldened smaller criminal organizations, and I was wondering how you would put that in perspective with trade, like we see today the, the Somalian pirates that are taking hold of ships and trade, and can you comment on that, about terrorism in general with trade and then most recently, the pirating of ships. Yeah, I'd wanted to put a chapter on piracy in the book. I just ran out of time uh, and pages. Um, but but wherever wherever there are not coast guards and navies, there are pirates. Okay, uh, you know, to those who say you know we want to get the government off our backs, um, I say go to Somalia. There's no governments. There's no taxes. Uh, uh, you know, and it also. You know, pirates tend to thrive in narrow straits. And, of course, the, the strait par excellence in that area, it's one that no one ever talks about, is the Bab el-Mendeb, which is the entrance, the south entrance of the, uh, of the Red Sea. Uh, and that's really where they live because that's where the, pi- the best pickings are because that's where all the trade, that's where all the traffic's going. If you want to catch a tanker, that's where you go fishing. Uh, and, and uh, you know... It gets to the whole point of strategic trades, strategic traits, traits in the history of trade, which is a whole other subject. The, the reason why the Peloponnesian War got started was because the Athenians, uh, their, very, their lifeline, their grain supply came from the Ukraine, which, and all that trade flowed through the, uh, the Hellespont, the, Bosphorus and modern, the modern Bosphorus and Dardanelles, and they wanted to keep the pirates out. And so they had to control those straits, and thus was born the Athenian Empire, because they had to control this entire, entire naval route. So even those of us that are rabid free traders, I've noticed, have a tendency to um, view food security almost sort of have an almost visceral reaction to it, where we have no problem with tariffs to protect our national food supplies. What... Um, I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Is that, a wise, is that a wise reaction to, no matter how much you believe that specialization in trade is a good thing, still want to be able to have all your food homegrown? Yeah, I mean, you know, food, you know, food security is the most basic kind of security. And unfortunately, that, that cow left the barn a long time ago. We are thoroughly... Uh, the whole world is thoroughly interdependent. If you were to shut off even a fraction of world trade, hundreds of millions of people around the world would starve. Um, there's an environmental issue here as well, which is that if you're going to produce sugar, you want to do it in the place that can produce it with the least amount of inputs 
Um, I'm just using sugar as an example. Uh, uh, if you want to produce sugar somewhere, you want to produce it where you don't need pesticides, where you don't need fertilizer. That place is Brazil. That place is Cuba. That place is not Florida, where you need vast amounts of pesticides and where you're going to kill all the lakes in the state. Uh, by doing it. Uh, by the same token, if you want to produce grain, for God's sakes, produce it in the Midwest. Don't try to produce it in Saudi Arabia, which is what the Saudis have been trying to do for the past 30 years. You know, the amount of, of inputs you need in Saudi Arabia to produce a bushel of wheat are probably five times the inputs you need in Kansas. So you know, if you're concerned about the environment, that's, you, know, you, you really should be a free trader as well. Well, thank you for that plug for my home state of Kansas. <laughs> And thank you for being here today. We really appreciate your insight and uh, your terrific presentation. Bill will be signing books out in the lobby if you'd like to have your book personalized. So uh, just stop by the table out there, uh, and uh, he will take care of that. Thank you to the Guardier clients and friends. Uh, we very much appreciate you uh, coming to spend uh, lunch with us. And we want to thank the World Affairs Council for partnering with us. Uh, we very much enjoy collaborating with you. We're now officially adjourned. Uh, have a safe and fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.